Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro is an applied neuroscience company that currently offers premium brain health coaching to clients interested in peak cognitive performance globally, and will soon be offering targeted neuromodulation services, including QEEG brain mapping, EEG neurofeedback, brain photobiomodulation, and more to clients in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area starting November of 2021. Go ahead and check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com to learn more and to book a coaching session today. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Nick Jacomis. Nick is Leafly's Director of Science and Innovation and holds a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University and a BS in genetics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the host of a popular science podcast, which you can listen to for free at uh, nickjacomas.com. So Nick, uh, really happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Toby. So tell me what what originally sparked your whole interest in in cannabis and hemp, uh, just uh, what got you interested in, in studying it as a medicine? Um, I've been interested in cannabis for quite some time. I mean, just sort of going back to my own personal history with the plant. Um, I think many, many people that have interacted with cannabis are often, uh, captivated by it in certain ways. Um, you know, it's a very diverse plant. When you look at different cannabis plants, there's clearly many different varieties. They look different. They smell different and they can even feel different. And so there's been sort of a lot of mystery and intrigue historically around what, what that diversity is at the chemical level that gives rise to those, um, that diverse array array of, of aromas and potential psychoactive and medicinal effects this plant can have, because if, if you're familiar with the biology at all, you know, the cannabis plant is contains many, many different compounds. The, The most famous one is THC, which is the principal, psychoactive agent, which is responsible for the intoxicating effects, but there's actually, you know, dozens and dozens of compounds, other cannabinoids, terpenes, and other classes of compounds that this plant produces. Different types of cannabis plants will produce them in different ratios. And there's a lot of interest right now, you know, academically and in the private sector to sort of map out that diversity and understand which combinations of these compounds might be most suitable for different different things, just different types of effects, both, both in terms of your personal use or, you know, applied uses either in the product development space for consumer packaged goods or in the, in the research world for medical applications. So I've always just been very interested in that, that area of plant chemistry and understanding, you know, what the actual, uh, you know, chemical logic of of that is and and how it, how it maps to the types of effects it has in, in a mammalian brain. Quick, uh, quick question for you. Are strain names bogus as far as when it comes to the effects of cannabis? Is it more so related to this, as you were kind of talking about the combination and different ratios of the different cannabinoids and terpenes? 
is there anything to, you know, a, an actual strain or because I've heard a lot of people kind of in this space talking about how a strain, you know, or uh, indica sativa doesn't really mean anything. What's your take on that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm actually, I've actually been working for some time now on a research project that looks into those questions exactly. And so I've been doing a collaboration with some scientists at the University of Colorado, where we've taken um, a bunch of cannabis laboratory testing data from six different states across the US, Washington, Oregon, California, Alaska, Michigan, and Florida. And so these are, these are the testing facilities within each state that are responsible for actually testing the products that go into dispensaries. And so they measure um, the cannabinoid and the terpene content of many of these samples. And so we have many, many tens of thousands of samples that have been tested for cannabinoids and terpenes. And what we did with these questions in mind is we first mapped out, literally mapped out the chemical landscape of commercial cannabis in the United States. So we basically just show um, how, how the different cannabinoids and terpenes are spread out across the different chemotypes or chemical phenotypes of cannabis that we see. So we use different analytical techniques to define some of those chemotypes. And then we simply ask how well do the commercial labels that are used match up to the actual chemical profiles that we see out there. And so we investigated that question at two different levels. So for those that don't know, in the cannabis industry, commercially, there's some very popular labels that are used that are purported to tell you different types of cannabis that are out there, meaning that you know one type will have one tend to have one effect, one type will tend to have another effect. And those labels exist uh, on two, two main levels that you'll hear about. So at the higher level, you have the basic three categories for cannabis flower and other cannabis products that you often see in a dispensary, and that's indica, hybrid, and sativa. So the claim, if you were to walk into a dispensary, you would almost certainly be told by a bud tender, the, the people that uh, are basically responsible for getting you a product and recommending something to you. You'll be told um, very matter-of-factly that indica strains will make you relaxed or sedated, Sativa strains will make you energized or creative and hybrid strains being a hybrid of the two will be somewhere in the middle. It's a very simple and intuitive system. The big open question is, is it, is it true at all? Um, the reason this even, before I answer that, but I mean, the reason this nomenclature exists is really due to the legacy of prohibition and how legalization has rolled out in the US. Um, because, you know, cannabis has been around for, you know, so long. It's been in the United States from since, you know, early 20th century. We've had decades and decades and decades of, you know, seeds coming in, growers in the illicit market illegally, you know, growing this, cultivating this, um, hybridizing different strains, and very, you know, creatively and systematically in many, many ways, um, you know, creating new cultivars. So if you talk to a botanist, they'll, they'll often... Everyone has like their own language. If you talk to a botanist, they'll talk about cultivars. If you talk to a traditional cannabis grower, they'll talk about strains, which is sort of a term co-opted from microbiology, right? Different strains of a virus, different strains of a bacteria. They sort of co-opted that and started using it to describe the different cultivars, the different types of plants that they were breeding. And then, you know, more recently, you'll have scientists 
um, like Ethan Russo and others talk about chemo bars. So, you know, thinking about it, not in terms of the physical features of the plant, which is traditionally how people in cannabis think about strains. Does it have broad leaves or narrow leaves? Is it short or tall? Does it have a relatively fast or relatively slow growth cycle? But thinking about it in terms of its chemical phenotype or its chemotype. Um, is it THC dominant or CBD dominant? If it's THC dominant, what kind of terpene profile does it have? And so if you think about it, it must be true that if there are psychoactive or medicinal effects um, of different types of cannabis, if there truly are different types that, that tend to have different effects on average, that must mean that their chemistry is different, right? Because the effects are going to be caused by the chemistry. So if you just sort of think about it very simple logical terms, if it's true that indicas are different from sativas in terms of their effects, then if you go look at all of the indica samples and you look at all of the sativa samples and you look at their chemistry, there must be some kind of difference there, you know? And uh, as is often true for on the internet for these things, um, depending on where you look, you know, you'll get contradictory answers. You know, you can find websites that'll essentially say indicas are more sleepy because they have more THC. And then you'll have other people say, well, sativas are energizing because they have more THC. So, and there's no, there's very rarely any data attached to these claims. Um, people that are slightly more sophisticated will tell you, again, very matter of factly, well, indica strains tend to have higher levels of the terpene myrcene, and that's why they're sedating and blah, blah, blah. Um, but again, very little data actually attached to a lot of these claims. And so we wanted to assess whether it could be true in principle, whether or not different categories like indicas versus sativas or different strain names um, could actually have different effects. And that means, do they actually have on average a different chemical profile? And so we just looked at the data. And what that means is we, we took in and looked at tens and tens of thousands um, relatively tens of that many tens of thousands of samples across several different states in the US, as I mentioned, we looked at their cannabinoid profile, and we looked at their terpene profile. And we mapped out that chemistry. And then we simply asked how well does the indica sativa hybrid label attached to many of those samples match up with the chemistry. And then we did the same thing for strain names. So that work is about to be submitted and a preprint will go up probably this month. So that will be like available to read on the internet um, as it's going through peer review. But just to give you a preview, the basic answer is when you map out the chemistry of commercial cannabis in terms of cannabinoid and terpene profiles, it pretty much does not line up in any clear way with Indica Steva hybrid. In other words, if you close your eyes and you pick a random strain off a dispensary shelf, that's an Indica, and you close your eyes and you pick another one off a shelf that's a Sativa, they're, norm, they're no more likely to be different from each other than they are similar to each other. Um, another way of saying that is if you compare that random indica to a random sativa, they're really no more likely to be different than if you pick two random indicas or two random sativas. Now, what's sort of interesting about that is um, one way that could be true is if all the cannabis, all the THD dominant cannabis commercially is pretty much the same, but it's not. So there actually is a diversity, a chemical diversity out there. That diversity is simply not captured by the indica hybrid sativa labels as they're used in the commercial marketplace very well. Um, so there are different terpene profiles. We used some analytical techniques to define, you know, at least three clearly distinct 
chemotypes of THC dominant cannabis, in very simplified terms, relatively speaking, you would you would talk about uh, strain strains or cultivars that are very high in uh, terpene called myrcene and often pinene as well. So there's strains that tend to have relatively high myrcene and pinene. There are strains that. Before yeah. we go any further, could we just uh, introduce kind of a definition um, for uh, terpenes uh, mm -hmm. for the audience? Yeah. So it's worth talking about cannabinoids and terpenes. They're the two most like abundant and, and widely discussed classes of chemical compounds found in cannabis, although not the only ones. So starting with cannabinoids, because they're the most familiar and probably the most conse consequential for the effects, um, right? THC, CBD, these are the things that one will likely be familiar with. Um, these compounds are cannabinoids. So they are plant cannabinoids if they're in cannabis, they're coming from the plant. And they're cannabinoids because they belong to a class of compounds that is similar to endogenous compounds in our own body called endocannabinoids. And so these things tend to interact in various ways with our endocannabinoid system, which is simply a receptor system in the body, one of many. And um, I'm not going to go into too much detail here because um, we could spend a lot of time on that. But these are compounds that just have chemical properties such that they interact with the endocannabinoid system in some way. Um, they're non-volatile. So when you smell cannabis, you're not smelling the cannabinoids. THC and CBD don't have the right chemical properties to you know float into the air and into your nose. Um, but they are psychoactive. Both THC and CBD are psychoactive. Um, some of the other minor cannabinoids, which are very minor and very rare, as we showed in our paper in commercial cannabis, um, might also be psychoactive as well. They have a variety of effects. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can go read on that. Um, but that's, that's one class of compounds. Um, there's a different class of closely related compounds. So sort of like a, a sister class of compounds. So they share certain properties with each with the cannabinoids, but, but they are a separate class. And those are the terpenes or terpenoids. You'll hear both terms and they're approximately interchangeable. Um, and terpenes are actually, you could almost think of them as like a chemical language that plants use to communicate with the outside world. So these are among the most abundant biomolecules found in nature, especially in the plant world. Um, more or less any plant that you've ever smelled in your life, what you're smelling there, at least in part, is terpenes. So they often have names like pinene. So the smell of pine needles comes largely from a terpene called pinene. There's different forms of pinene. The smell of lemons comes, at least in part, from another terpene called limonene. And there are literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds of terpenes out there in the world. If you if you go walk through the woods, you're you're just walking through you know, an in, invisible cloud of terpenes. And, and if you smell a flower, you're, you're really smelling the terpenes. The reason that they have all of these distinctive smells is that the plant is really, um, you know, if you were to anthropomorphize the plant world, you, you, you might say that the plants are intending to release these compounds in order to say something to animals. That might be to humans, that might be to bugs, you know, and bees and things. Oftentimes it's the things that might want to eat the plant. So a lot of these compounds serve a defensive function for the plant. They often have insecticidal or, you know, some kind of aversive quality to them that sends a signal to insects, for example, that says, don't eat me, more or less. 
um, they might attract other things that will help to defend the plant from those other critters. Um, but the way they do that is they basically travel through the air or they come in contact with a bug or an animal somehow. And they have chemical properties such that they interface with receptors in that animal. And oftentimes that includes receptors in the nervous system. So, you know, the plant is not really evolved to get humans high or attract humans, arguably. But what it has evolved to do is repel insects and things that might want to eat it. And as just a natural side effect of making these compounds for that reason, these compounds, many of them, bind to receptors in the nervous system. And so in the context of a mammal, like a human, these things can have psychoactive or medicinal effects. They probably have modulatory effects on some of these other compounds. And the basic idea is these plants aren't making one thing. They're actually making a whole set of compounds. They usually make dozens and dozens of these things, like a whole bouquet of them. And the reason for that is that plants can't move. And so unlike animals, they can't run away from their problems. So they deal with them pharmaceutically, essentially. So they don't have a, an immune system like we do with cells that go around and you know eat bacteria. These things often have antibacterial or antifungal properties as well. Plants, you know, a huge problem for plants or and for cannabis growers is, is mildew, for example. So a lot of these terpenes, you know, are, are helping the plant in that way, you know, combat mildew or mold. Um, but anyways, these, these plants often have a particular profile. So any two strains of cannabis, any two plants out in the world, flowers, trees, whatever, they tend to have a chemical signature that defines that species or that subspecies. And that signature is tied to that plant simply because that's, that's the combination of compounds that's most suitable for that plant species or subspecies to you know, protect itself and just survive out in the world. Um, and that's why you have a diversity of terpene profiles, for example, that you see in different types of cannabis. You know, um, you can imagine cannabis out in the wild, you know, if you're in the Hindu Kush region of the Middle East versus in, you know, Central or South, South America versus in, you know, Southeast Asia, you have a different habitat, you have dip, different physical conditions that you're living in, and you've got different organisms that are trying to eat you or compete with you. And so the particular environment the plant finds itself in means that it's going to have a particular set of chemical compounds like cannabinoids and terpenes that will be best able to help protect that plant. And so that's where the diversity comes from. Um, and then of course, you know, with human hybridization, you know, these things are crossed with each other all the time to create new forms of diversity. And that gives rise to the diversity that we actually see in the commercial marketplace of consumer cannabis in the United States. And that is really the data that we were studying. So you take many, many samples from that consumer marketplace of all the cannabis flower across the U.S. And we look at what is, what is the set of all cannabinoids and terpenes that we see in these samples. And when we do that, as I said, it doesn't line up very well with the Indicostiva hybrid labeling system. And so then the second question is, well, what about these strain names? Well, there's, you know, allegedly thousands of strains out there. In other words, allegedly there are thousands of distinct types of cannabis. And um, if that's true, then there should be a bunch of clearly discernible chemical profiles or chemotypes, chemical phenotypes that we see. And if the strain names mean anything, if they are a reliable marker for the effects that a given strain will, will cause, then we ought to see that 
these strain names um, reliably line up with distinct profiles. So for example, there's a very popular strain called Blue Dream. There's another very, very, very popular strain called um, Sour Diesel. Sour Diesel is commonly, I believe it's considered a sativa normally. And so people will often describe it as having energizing effects. Um, Blue Dream is usually considered a hybrid or a sativa dominant hybrid, depending on who you asked. Maybe its effects aren't quite so energizing. And then you've got something like Granddaddy Purple, which is considered to be a quintessential indica that will have sedative effects. Well, if, you know, if, if these things were all true statements, then when we go look at the chemistry of samples attached to those names, we ought to see two things. One, that all of the Blue Dream samples should be relatively similar to the other Blue Dream samples, right? They're not just haphazardly using these names. Um, and the other thing is they should have distinct profiles between the strain names, right? So if we look at all the Granddaddy Purple samples, they, they ought to have some difference in their chemical profile compared to all the Blue Dream samples and all the Sour Diesel samples. And so we just took this very large data set, the largest data set I think of its kind that's been studied like this. And we looked at the set of all samples that had a strain name attached to them. And, and that was a very large set. And, and we said, how, how consistent are these strain names? Um, are people just randomly picking strain names and there's no systematicity to it at all? And, and how distinct are these different strain names when you, when you look at them? So the basic answer is this. When you look at strain names, what you find is that they are um, a more consistent indicator of chemical profiles than the indica sativa hybrid labels, um, but they're certainly not perfect. And there is a huge spread among the strain names. So some strain names are relatively consistent, meaning if you close your eyes and you pick two different samples from two different producers with that strain name, odds are good that they will have the same basic profile. But there's other strain names where a much weaker relationship exists. And there's some strain names where you do no better than chance. And, and we can actually model this quite well because what we can do with this data is we can just randomly scramble all of the strain names. We can randomly shuffle them across all of the different product IDs that we have and ask um, whether or not the actual strain names attached to the data are more or less consistent than that. And the basic result is it depends on the strain name. Some strain names are statistically more reliable in terms of pointing to a particular chemical phenotype than you would expect from randomly shuffling all the names or randomly just naming all the products. And some strains are not. And there's a huge, there's a huge spread there. So, you know, just a, a huge um, distribution. Some strains are relatively reliable. Some are sort of medium, some are low, and, and some are no better than chance. Many of them um, are no better than chance. So, um, I mean, there's a lot more we can unpack there, but what else? Do you have any questions so far? I do. I do have a couple. So as far as, you know, when it, when it comes to like your example of, uh, you know, uh, sour diesel, generally people mm -hmm. think of it as more of like an energizing sativa, blue dream mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle of a, as a hybrid and like granddaddy purple, what you're mentioning is like a kind of more of a sedating indica. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, you know, the placebo effect is definitely coming into play, you know, a, a a big factor here as far as like, do you believe that, you know, say someone who's going to, you know, someone who's using uh, cannabis commercial cannabis and they're going to a dispensary. So they've both probably heard of these different strains. Maybe they've looked them up on Leafly and read, you know, this one's going to be really sedating. This one's going to be really energizing. And then they also go and the bud tender is telling them, 
this is going to be really, you know, that, yeah. so, so it sounds, it, it seems to me as if there's almost maybe like a twofold sort of a, a placebo effect going on where, where people are kind of being led to believe that the strain is going to produce a certain effect, even though it's chemical makeup might not be what's actually responsible for that effect. Yeah, there's definitely very large expectancy effects. Um, and that's not surprising. I mean, you would expect that you would expect that going into this, right? This is inherently, this is an inherently subjective thing. I mean, when you're talking about a THC dominant strain, which is what we're talking about 95 plus percent of the time, um, right. It's, it's making you high. It's, it's literally altering your conscious subjective experience. It's very difficult. I mean, we can all appreciate how difficult it is to talk about our subjective experience and, so it's inherently something that's very difficult to talk about and something that's very amenable to suggestion. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of expectancy effects and that's not surprising in any way, but there's also, um, you know, chemistry is really only one factor. Um, chemistry is an important factor in determining effects. Context and ex expectations are another important factor, but the other one that's big and arguably even the biggest one is dose. So, you know, if I, if we, if you take two different cannabis products that are high in THC and they have a different terpene profile, say, um, and let's just assume for the sake of argument, they, they will cause different effects. Well, if they cause different effects, they will, do, that means that they will cause different effects for you at the same dose. But if you simply smoke enough of anything with THC, you, you know, that changes the effects, right? A low dose and a high dose of something have different effects, even if it's the same thing that you're smoking each time. So, you know, to put it in simple terms, you know, if you smoke enough of anything, you're, you're probably going to go to sleep. Um, so, so then imagine someone, you know, going into a dispensary, they're like, okay, I'm looking for cannabis to help me sleep. I want to get sleepy. They go in, the bartender says, use this one. It's an indica. It will make you sleepy. Whether or not it is that or is something else, um, if you just go home and you smoke a little bit and it doesn't make you sleepy, and then you just keep smoking more, you'll probably get sleepy at some point. So you can sort of tune, you, you can, you know, in some sense, get many different effects out of the same thing by just modulating the dose. And, you know, so that's just another complicating factor here. So, you know, it's very, it's, it's actually not difficult for someone to be like, oh yeah, that thing caused the effect I wanted because they're expecting it to cause that effect. And, you know, whether or not it's the best thing to cause that effect, you, you can probably get that effect to some extent at some dose for that strain. So there's all of these complicating factors here. And then all of this is riding on top of the fact that, you know, these names are, um, there's, there's really no stringency. So, so there's no, you can, you can name a product anything you want. Um, what's kind of remarkable about the results that we found is that, that there was any consistency at all to the strain names. Um, the strain names aren't distributed randomly. And we can, we, can, we can look at that directly in our data set and analyze it directly. So it means that people are like actually with some reliability naming these things um, you know, in a somewhat disciplined manner. So for example, let me give you some examples. Um, a strain like, like um, Blue Dream is actually you know, what you, you, you describe as relatively consistent. So when you take, and we've got many, many blue dream samples, and again, there's no, 
when a sample is labeled Blue Dream in the data set, that doesn't mean it's bona fide Blue Dream. There's no genetic verification that cultivars Blue Dream. The growers can name anything Blue Dream. They can put a tulip in a box and call it Blue Dream. And all we would see is the terpene profile for a tulip and, and the label Blue Dream. So there's, there's nothing guaranteeing that these things really are Blue Dream. All we know is we've got a terpene profile and a cannabinoid profile, and someone said it was Blue Dream. Now, turns out that even though you know, anyone can name these things anything, um, all of the you know, many hundreds of Blue Dream samples we have, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but you know, around three quarters of the time, 75% or so of those Blue Dream samples are the same basic profile, even though they're coming from different growers in different states across the country. Um, Blue Dream is most commonly associated with this high myrcene, high pinene chemotype. Um, so it's THC dominant and it tends to have myrcene and pinene as its predominant terpenes. And, you know, remarkably, you know, about three quarters of the time, give or take, um, the Blue Dream samples have that basic profile. And it's not always the same, right? It's, it's a little bit different, but there, that's that same basic profile as opposed to a distinct terpene profile. So the way you might think about this, if this is all like unfamiliar terminology to you, is if you think about something like wine and you think about the different varietals of wine, right? You've got Merlots and you've got Pinot Grigios and you've got Chardonnays and so on and so forth. But there isn't just one like type of Merlot, right? There's probably thousands of brands out there that have their own Merlot. And the Merlots aren't all identical to each other. They might even change for the same vineyard one year to the next. But we know what a Merlot is and there's like a definition of what that means. And, you know, they're all relatively similar to each other, right? They all taste and look and smell much more similar to the other Merlots than they do to the Pinot Grigio even though all the Merlots are not identical to each other. Um, and that's what you see, at least with some of the strain names, that majority of them will be in the same basic chemical neighborhood, right? So you can think of them as like, okay, this one's usually a Merlot. It might be a little bit different from one Merlot to the next, but, but it's the same basic chemical phenotype each time. Um, and then, of course, some, some strain names are not like that. Some of them are, are truly random. But what's interesting is, you know, a strain like Blue Dream has a relatively consistently uh, distinct profile from something like um, uh, super lemon haze, say. So super lemon haze is also THC dominant, but it actually tends to um, have high levels of this terpene called terpinaline. And it has relatively low levels of myrcene and pinene, which were high in Blue Dream. So there are strain names out there where a majority of the time, those samples will have distinct terpene profiles from samples with another strain name but it's never perfect. And the only way to know for sure is, is to have that lab testing data. Hi guys, it's Toby Passman, host of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro podcast. I hope you guys are enjoying the show today so far. Today is a great day to start your own podcast. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you wanna share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to guest get their message out to the world. Let's create something great together. 
If you guys sign up, you'll receive a $20 Amazon gift card. Um, just click the link in the show notes and uh, go ahead and sign up for that. All right, let's get back to the show. Nick, let me ask you this. If, if you could sort of play God in the sense of kind of recreating the whole commercial cannabis space and, and strain names and labels uh, for different products, do you have any ideas as far as how you you think would be an ideal system? Like, would you mm -hmm. abolish strain names altogether? Would you reclassify yeah. them somehow? What, what's your take? Yeah, so there's a wide range of opinions on this, depending on who you ask. So, you know, if you if you talk to someone, you know, in the growing community, that will tend to be someone who, you know, there's an entire culture that's decades and decades old of growing and hybridizing these plants um, and, and doing that at great personal risk because until very recently that was illegal. So there's a lot of time and a lot of effort that was put in by people who took on a lot of pers personal risk to create these cultivars that are circulating legally in many places today. And those are the, the people in the community that did the work to create these things and to name these things. And you know, so they would say that the stray names are fun, they're part of the culture, and they do or at least can mean something. Um, someone who's more of like a hard-nosed, you know, science or academic type, you know, likes to scoff at the strain names and say, ha ha ha, you know, botanists don't use the term strains. That's what we that's what we 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 call bacteria as having different strains. That's not the official way of talking about it. But you know, language is malleable. Um and, and categorization is different. What we need is, you know, we need, you know, these are plants, right? So it's good to have that rigorous, um, you know, botanical scientific perspective, but these are also consumer products that are being used by regular people out in the world. So, you know, you might, you know, someone who's more of a hard-nosed scientist might say like, we should call them Chemovar 4.3a and Chemovar 2.6d and like give them names like that. But that's not functionally useful to a consumer, right? No, even if you tried to do that, the people talking about this out in the real world and buying these products and using them simply aren't going to adopt a system like that. It needs to be simple enough and relatable enough that the average person can use it. But it also needs to be it needs to be rooted in the science and it needs to be rooted in something objective and real. And there needs to be some kind of enforcement of some kind of standard that's rooted in that science. Um, and this is not an alien thing. Like this exists for other things that we all buy all the time. Like, um, you know, something like wine or apples or corn. Um, I'm not an expert in those areas, but my understanding is right. There are rules and regulations. If I'm, you know, if I've got some apple trees outside and I want to start selling apples, I'm not allowed to just slap a, you know, a golden delicious sticker on it. Like it actually has to conform to some standard based on, you know, what that seed is and, and what its properties are. If I'm, if I'm selling wine bottles from, from my wine vineyard, um, I can't just arbitrarily call something a Merlot or Pinot Grigio. It's got to be made of the right grapes and have the right stuff in it. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what those details are, but you know, there's, there's precedent for these things. Like this has been done before. And so I think the right general approach is you want to, you know, the first stake in the ground needs to be genetics, right? So um, the genetics of a particular cultivar 
will allow you to confirm whether it is that cultivar, right? So if something truly is blue dream, it will have a genetic signature that tells you it's that cultivar as opposed to something else. So if you're growing something else, you should not be allowed to call it blue dream. But today you are allowed to do that, right? I can just pick a random cannabis seed, grow it, slap a blue dream sticker on the box. So that should not be allowed. But then you need another layer because you know, two different blue dream seeds grown by two different people might not have an identical chemical profile um, just because the grow conditions can modulate the profile to some extent. Um, so you ultimately want the categorization to be based on the chemistry because that's, that's really what matters in terms of the sensory and psychoactive effects. And so my belief is that, you know, the chemistry should be front and center in defining what, what type of thing the, the product is labeled as. So we need some kind of system that's rooted in the chemistry first and foremost, but also ties that to the genetics of the cultivar. We need that system to be standardized across states and enforced by some body that's, that's got the authority to enforce it. And we need, you know, we need to have that strong rooting in science, but we also need to be using names that like, you know, your average bud tender and your average consumer will, will relate to and be able to, to use in their own linguistic environment. So my general view is that <clears throat> even though, you know, strain isn't the official botanical nomenclature that a scientist would use, um, strain names are what's historically been used in cannabis. It's what's widely used today. And even though they're not used with um, total discipline today, and there's no real standardization that's been enforced, I think it's it's easy to imagine, relatively easy to imagine, that one could enforce such a standardization. And in other words, one could use at least some of the existing strain names, use them in a more disciplined way so that they do reliably for all of them refer to a particular chemotype each time. And you know, just create the right regulatory guardrails to make sure that things stay that way. Right. And, and that basically simply means that if you're going to grow something and call it something. You know, you've got to know the genotype so that you know what cultivar you're growing. And then you've got to use names and labels, you know, whatever those may be, we'll just be agnostic for now, in a way that, that consistently refers to a particular chemical profile. Um, and that's, you know, not unlike, again, what you, what you do with wine today. Like if I, if I go buy a Merlot somewhere, it doesn't matter where I buy it, doesn't matter what brand it is. I know it's not going to look and taste like a Pinot Grigio. It's going to look and taste pretty much like every Merlot I've had. Not that they're all ex exactly identical. It's a general group, but there are, there are guardrails that define what that means and ties it to objective features of the product I'm actually buying. Nick, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you, you know, your take as a neuroscientist on just kind of uh, cannabis and the brain, you know, in terms of there's you know, plenty of research I've read as far as the different cannabinoids have, you know, having neuroprotective properties, uh, along with some, some beneficial effects of a lot of the different terpenes. Um, but then on the contrary, there's, you know, studies about cannabis and short-term memory and, uh, you know, some, I guess, more detrimental effects of cannabis uh, on the brain. And I just wanted to kind of hear, you know, your take on, uh, you know, is it, is it good for the brain? Is it bad for the brain? Is it somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. Um, well, I sort of like 
I, I sort of reject the question. I'll answer a slightly different question. So, you know, I, I don't believe you should be thinking about things as anything as like good for you or bad for you. So whether or not something is good for you or bad for you is highly context dependent. In the case of drugs and psychoactives, it's, it's highly dose dependent as well. So, you know, one compound can be very good for you at one dose in most contexts, and it can be very bad for you in a different context or at a different dose. And um, this is very true for some of these compounds. So, you know, you, you, I, I think you simply should not think about individual drugs as being good for you or bad for you. Um, the answer is pretty much any drug can be either, and it depends on how you're taking it, how much of it you're taking, and what the what the surrounding context is. So let's unpack that for a, well, you know, let's just sort of talk about two compounds concretely. Let's talk about THC because it's it's the most common one. It's that's in cannabis, and and then maybe we'll pick a terpene to talk about. So THC, obviously, it's the principal psychoactive agent in cannabis. It binds to the CB1 receptor and it makes you high. It also does a number of other things because it's not just binding to the CB1 receptor. It's binding to a number of things in your brain. And the extent to which a drug is going to bind to all of the things that it binds to is going to depend on the dose, right? So if you imagine, say, three receptors that a given drug like THC binds to, you know, maybe, maybe one receptor is the most sticky for that drug. And so it'll tend to tickle that receptor the most. But then if you keep, keep taking more and more, you can saturate that receptor. And now you'll start to kind of activate other receptor systems. And that's sort of a, a crude way to think about why you get biphasic or dose dependent effects with something like THC, which you do. Meaning if you take THC at a relatively low dose and relatively high dose, you can get very different, even opposite effects. Right. And so that's one reason why I don't think it's good to think about drugs uniformly as good or bad, because the exact same drug can, in some cases, do more or less the opposite of what it did at a low dose if you take it at a high dose. So, so with THC as a general rule of thumb, um, if you take it at a lower dose, the type of psychoactive effect you would ex people often experience at a lower dose is one that's more euphoric or maybe stimulating. Um, <coughs> It's not going to be overwhelming as that dose, and it can actually be anxiolytic or anti-anxiety. As that dose goes up to a relatively high dose, it can start to flip in the opposite direction. It can become dysphoric and unpleasant. It can become anxiogenic. It can make you more anxious and paranoid, as many people know. Um, and it can become sedative as opposed to energizing. So that's, that's you know, connecting that back to our earlier discussion. You know, why do some people say that some types of cannabis are energizing and some people say that some types are sedating? Well, a lot of that I think is explained by the dose of THC that you take in your own sensitivity. I think almost any THC product can be energizing or sedating depending on how much you take. And the level that you need to take for an energizing or sedating effect is going to depend on your own sensitivity, your own intrinsic sensitivity and your own tolerance level based on your consumption habits. So, you know, I, I, I simply don't think it's valid to say that like THC is good for your brain or bad for your brain. Um, it does some good things and many of these compounds do. So the cannabinoids, including THC, um, generally have very good anti-inflammatory effects. Um, so THC, at least by some measures, is a more potent anti-inflammatory than many things that might be in your medic medicine cabinet right now, like hydrocortisone or, or aspirin. Um, so a lot of these compounds have anti-inflammatory effects. Um, 
that's why that they can help with things like different forms of pain. One of the most robust medical things that cannabinoids like THC help with is pain, especially chronic pain. Um, they can disrupt memory acutely. So if we talk about memory and whether or not it's good or bad for memory, there's two things that come to mind here. One is acute versus chronic effects. And one is age dependent effects. So let's take those one at a time. Um, the acute effects of THC intoxication are pretty straightforward in terms of memory and cognition. It disrupts your cognition. Now, on the one hand, you can become more creative and you're, you're in different thought patterns and people, including myself, often have used cannabis, you know, just to, to get the ideas flowing and the creative juices going. So there is value, in my opinion, for, you know, doing creative or intellectual work and just, you know, stirring the pot and, and putting yourself into a different mind space than you're normally in. Um, but it's going to, you know, while you're high, your short-term memory will be impaired. Your ability to sustain attention on one focused task will be impaired. So it, it comes with cognitive impairment in that sense. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. In the right context, it's okay to do those things. And we all do those things all the time, right? Like a, a little kid spinning around in a chair is impairing their cognition, essentially, because they're not going to be able to walk around for a few seconds in a state of dizziness. But you know, it's still okay to do that. Um, you know, celebrating a wedding by getting drunk is something we've all probably done in the right context. That's okay. You know, if you're at home or in a safe context and you're doing something that impairs your cognition, but allows you to appreciate sights and smells in a new way, or makes you feel more creative or just makes you laugh. Like that's all good. That's all fine. Um, so again, right. There's like, do, do you, do you talk about that temporary acute memory impairment as, as a bad thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can say that it's impairing your memory, but on the flip side, right, you can get a lot of benefit from it as well in the moment. Um, but it's good to distinguish the acute effects that we described from chronic effects. My understanding, you know, this literature is always somewhat controversial and different people will, will see different things in different studies. Um, the chronic effects of THC, my understanding is that historically there have been studies that show that chronic long-term use of a lot of THC can cause um, chronic cognitive impairment, meaning you know people are essentially scoring lower on memory tests and things. But my understanding is also that a lot of those effects seem to disappear when you control for other confounding factors. So um, I would say it's not completely settled science um, what the long-term effects are and whether or not there's any clear negative impact on brain structure and function in the long term. Um, I would say that that statement is probably limited to people using it as adults. There's generally, for THC or for any other drug, essentially as, as a good rule of thumb, if you start very early, especially adolescence or pre-adolescence, and you're using the drug chronically from that young age before your brain is you know, developed and matured, um, the odds of long-term detrimental effects are higher and the odds of de developing dependency is higher. Um, that being said, right, if you're using it as an adult, um, it has many uses. So we touched we touch on the fact that, you know, it, it's a good anti-inflammatory. Um, it can also just generally help with pain through its, you know, effects on euphoria, causing euphoria and things like that. Um, and then what's super interesting is these age-dependent effects we haven't talked about yet. So they've done some very interesting experiments in mice that I'll describe with THC, and, and they're doing clinical trials in humans now. But what they do is essentially this. 
you take young mice, they're basically what you would call adolescent mice, right? Young, healthy, spry. They do really well on learning memory tests, right? They're, they're, they're sort of, uh, you know, in the prime of their life. And then you take old mice. And we're going to do two sets of same sets of experiments in, in the juvenile or adolescent mice and in the old mice. And of course, the old mice, a little bit slower to complete tasks, right? They, they're not as, uh, they're, they're not quite as uh, good at the learning and memory tasks. And, um, you know, they're older. So what happens is um, they did this experiment that looked like this. They gave these mice THC chronically. So basically a, quite a bit of THC every day for a month. And then they let them like sit for a week. So when they do the actual test, there's no THC in the system. These mice aren't high when they're doing this. They're in a sober state of mind in all conditions. So give juvenile mice THC for a month. And then a week later, when they're sober, you put them through a battery of learning and memory tests, right? You make them navigate through mazes and things like this. And what you find is that the mice that were given chronic THC when they're juveniles do worse than their peers who had not been given THC that were given placebo. So in other words, chronic THC administration in ju juvenile mouse will tend to disrupt learning and memory. And those disruptions are measurable even in the absence of THC in the bloodstream. And then you see this, you see that in the brain too. So when they go in and they look at the neurons in the brain, they see cellular signatures of those learning and memory impairments, right? There's basically fewer connections between neurons and the neurons just don't quite look as good, so to speak. That's like a classic, that's, that's not a surprising result at all. That's sort of like the classic chronic THC administration result that you tend to get acute impairment when basically animals are asked to do things when they're high just like you might imagine you would get in a human. Um, but chronic administration will also cause impairments um, in, in the animals that, that received it chronically compared to those that didn't. What's super interesting about this experiment is what happened in the old mice. So the old mice, essentially the exact opposite happened. The old mice tend, when they're sober, tend to perform less well than ju juvenile mice. In fact, old sober mice sort of do as well as high juvenile mice, if, if, if I remember correctly. Um, but the old mice that were given chronic THC for 30 days actually did better than their sober counterparts. And likewise, they saw indications of um, increased plasticity and things in the brain. So in other words, chronic THC administration to an old mouse had a kind of cognitive enhancing effect. And so the idea here is that if you administer THC at the right dose, you can actually get different, even opposite effects at a young versus an old age. And the sort of theoretical or the hypothesis behind that is as we developed and as we age, our endocannabinoid system changes. Um, the levels of CB1 receptors and things in the brain change. And that change in CB1 receptor levels among other things that probably change, is going to impact what and how THC actually does in the brain, such that, you know, perhaps something that's detrimental at an early age can actually be beneficial at a later age. And I, I do believe they're doing clinical trials in humans right now in, in older hu human patients um, to see if low-dose THC can actually have some cognitive enhancement effects. So basically the opposite of what you would expect it to do in, in a young person. That's super interesting. And I would assume probably like neurodegenerative conditions that probably would have a lot of implications for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, um, 
that's exactly right. So, um, you know, it's sort of ironic that after all these years, it could turn out to be true if these clinical trials match the animal studies that, you know, THC, at least at a low dose, um, when you're elderly, might be, uh, might be quite neuroprotective. Um, I think it's plausible it will turn out that way just because we know that, that these compounds can have certain anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective effects. Um, some of them act as um, relatively good antioxidants. Um, it's not difficult to imagine ways that they might induce um, plasticity or, or be stimulating in some way to neurons um, in, in the right aged in, individual. And, you know, again, it's, it, it just comes back to this notion of you can't just uniformly think about a drug as good or bad because of all of these factors that come into play. The dose is super important. It can make something good bad or make something bad good, depending on the dose you take. And even if it's the same thing at the same dose, same everything, but you just wait 20 years, <laughs> your brain might respond very differently than it did 20 years ago. Um, so, so that's, that's why I, I don't like to say that any, any of these things are good or bad. It's all, it's all very context dependent. And, and then of course there's other compounds. Um, CBD is another one. That one is one where like, there's very little negative effects you can find with CBD. Um, you know, even when they give it to young children in these epilepsy trials and they're giving them hundreds or thousands of milligrams, um, it doesn't seem to have any real negative side effects, um, nothing toxic. Um, the worst you can say probably is that it can inhibit certain metabolic enzymes in your liver that influence the metabolism of other drugs. So you just need to be mindful of that. Um, but we're talking about very high doses of CBD. Um, so CBD, you know, at the doses that the average person would be taking from a CBD product they might have, um, there's not much you seem to be needing to worry about. There's no evidence of toxicity. Um, the only thing you really need to worry about is whether or not you actually have taken enough to do anything. Um, but on the flip side, you know, we can talk about some of the terpenes. So some of the terpenes, the terpenes are present at quite low levels in cannabis. And many of them have interesting properties. Many of them, beta caryophylline, for example, can be fairly potent anti-inflammatory. It can interact with the um, CB2 receptor in the endocannabinoid system. But some of these compounds, um, limonene, some of the other terpenes, um, can be irritating and caustic at a, a relatively high dose. So if you, you know, some people seem to take the viewpoint that, you know, plant medicine is all good all the time and, you know, just give me, give me more of everything. But, you know, some of these terp terpenes will, will have, you know, more or less corrosive effects, um, at least at a high dose. So, um, and some of them, I think at the right dose can, can have shown at least in vitro evidence of, of some cellular toxicity effects. And after all, right, the plant is making these things essentially for the purpose of irritating bugs and things trying to eat it. So it's not surprising that some of these things are going to irritate our own cells as well. Um, but again, a lot of that is dose dependent. Um, and, and I strongly suspect a lot of these terpenes might have um, potentially beneficial effects at one dose, but then if you go too high, they... The, the potential irritation or harm starts to outweigh that benefit. Nick, I want to ask you about, uh, as far as the interaction between, you know, THC and CBD. Mm -hmm. So just as far as my, you know, personal experience with, you know, cannabis, adding a little bit of CBD, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, THC, you know, uh, completely changes the, the effects for me and results, you know, in a different, um, different sort of high. Can you tell me what's going on in the brain there? Yeah. Um, so there's 
fairly reproducible evidence in the literature that if you co-administer THC and CBD, you give them at the same time, or you give CBD before the ingestion of THC, that the presence of that CBD will impact the effects that THC has. So there's definitely like a, a modulatory effect there, and there's a kind of interaction that's happening. And we actually have, you know, fairly good knowledge of what, what the basis for that is pharmacologically. So THC and CBD are very different in isolation, right? THC is the cannabinoid that gets you high. That's sort of the classic cannabis cannabinoid that you think about. CBD is non-intoxicating. It is psychoactive because we know that can, it can affect mood and, and anxiety and things like this. So it's psychoactive, but non-intoxicating, and it doesn't get you high. So it's, it's sort of radically different from THC. In some sense, um, you know, people often talk about THC and CBD in, in you know, scientists in the literature as having sort of opposite effects um, in many ways. Um, the locus of interaction for them is pr probably at the CB1 receptor. It's not necessarily only there, but THC activates the CB1 receptor, and that's the key event that needs to happen in the brain for the classical effects of, of the cannabis high to manifest. And CBD does not activate the CB1 receptor. It is what is often called a negative allosteric modulator, which is a fancy term that means that CBD does not stick to this receptor and activate it. It sort of sticks to the side of the receptor and changes its shape so that it can no longer be activated as well by an agonist, an activator of that receptor. So in the case of THC, if it gets to the CB1 receptor and, and there's nothing there, it will stick to it and activate it. However, if THC gets to that same CB1 receptor, but CBD is already sticking to it, that receptor is no longer able to accommodate the THC. And so that THC will you know, effectively bounce off and either be degraded or maybe go float over to a different kind of receptor that it might have um, affinity for. And so there is a pretty good pharmacological explanation there for why there would be this interactive effect. They both interact with the CB1 receptor, but they do so in very different ways. And CBD can effectively get in the way of THC doing what it normally does at the CB1 receptor, which is gonna mean it either gets degraded and simply does not do that, or it might um, essentially, uh, essentially allow that THC to have time to go do something else at a different kind of receptor. And that's more or less what the explanation, the best explanation that we have for why THC and CBD when taken at the same time is gonna result in a different effect than THC alone, even if it's the same dose, right? So if it's 10 milligrams of THC versus 10 milligrams of THC and 20 milligrams of CBD, um, I think there's a reasonable chance that you'll, you'll notice a difference. Awesome. When it comes to, you know, your, your take on just kind of the commercial cannabis market, you know, in terms of finding, you know, products that, that have the, uh, you know, different like terpenes and, and different uh, compounds that you want to, uh, you want to be getting from cannabis. You know, there's so many different ways nowadays, you know, especially for people who live in states uh, where cannabis is legal recreationally, you know, as far as oils, topical, you know, in uh, edibles, you know, um, the edible oils, flour, mm. like what, do you do you have uh, an opinion when it comes to uh, kind of the the preferred means of of getting cannabis and whether you know you take like uh, an isolate versus you know like a full spectrum extract? Mm -hmm. I would assume have you know very different effects. Yeah, um, I would say 
you know, because there are so many different types of products out there and because the naming and the labeling of these products is, is um, not as disciplined as you would like to make this as easy and reliable as it, as it should be for consumers, um, no matter, you know, no matter what I tell you or anyone else tells you, you're, you're going to need to do some experimentation and it's going to take some trial and error. Ultimately, what you need to do is find something that works for you and then, and then stick with that product from that brand, um, you know, a product that's being reliably made and it's got the same effects and same formulation each time um, is going to be important. But um, I would start to think about things this way. Um, first, you want to, you know, you want to assess whether you want a, do you need cannabis because you want is there something sort of wrong with the full body or something, some sort of full body effect you want? Do you need the cannabinoids to get everywhere in your system or is, is there something localized going on? So for example, um, if you've got knee pain and that's what you're looking to help, um, you might, you plausibly will find help with something that you inhale that goes into your bloodstream and goes everywhere. Um, but you might be interested in something that you can apply locally to that knee. Um, and so that's when you think about something like a topical, right? So a topical product is really appropriate when you don't want to feel psychoactive effects, especially intoxicating effects. And you've got a localized like pain or inflammation problem. So, and there's many different types of lotions that that and, and topicals that are out there. Um, but that would be why you pick a topical. Um, so for example, I, I advise a company called Dosist, which is, as the name implies, very much concerned about precise formulations and controlled dosing. Um, they've got some very interesting topicals that um, come in two basic forms. There's like an actual lotion and then there's like, um, like a spray, almost like a yeah, I mean, there's like a spray bottle. And, you know, one of them, you know, the lotion would probably be best for, you know, if you're at home and you really want to rub a lot of lotion and let it soak in and, and, and let it sit. Um, and the spray is really more for if you were like on the go. So, you know, variable one you want to think about is, do I want something that's localized or do I want something that's systemic? Um, if you want it localized for pain and inflammation, that's, I would say, really like the best use case for a topical. So you can look into lotions versus sprays um, and things like that. And you also, you know, this is where it gets tricky is just because something has THC or CBD or both in it, the, the key is really, is your body actually going to end up seeing those things? And what's important in the topical space is a topical that has THC in it and or CBD is not necessarily going to have the formulation that allows those cannabinoids to penetrate the skin and sort of get where they need to go as effectively as they can. So a lot of them probably won't. Like if you just kind of put THC and CBD in, you know, some, you know, run of the mill oil uh, for, for, for making a topical, you know, a lot of that THC and CBD might not really kind of soak into your skin very well and you effectively won't see it. Um, what I can tell you is that the Dosis products have formulations that actually have other, other natural ingredients in there that help with the penetration through the skin. So they help the, the cannabinoids, which are fat-soluble, actually sort of soak in 
to your muscles and, and kind of get where they need to go. So you want to be very mindful of the ingredients even beyond the core active ingredients. So if you're shopping for a topical and you're not an expert in this stuff, you might buy two different topicals, see which one works, but pay very close attention in the one that works to what's on the ingredient list. You know, there might be things in there that are allowing those cannabinoids to get in and work. Um, but let's, you know, the, the more common use case is, you know, someone who wants to have a systemic effect. Maybe you've just got like full body aches and pains. Maybe you just want to feel good and just want to relax. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorite pastimes is um, eating an edible about a half hour before I get a massage. Um, I mean, everyone loves getting a massage, and, and I, I can only speak for myself, but if I take 10 milligrams of tea, I actually, I like to take like a one-to-one or two-to-one. So that would be like, um, actually, I think the, the gummies that I use might be three-to-one. So it's three times the amount of CBD is THC. Um, so, you know, approximately 30 milligrams of CBD, 10 milligrams of THC. Like if I eat that on a relatively empty stomach about a half hour before a massage, you know, <laughs> it's a really good massage. Um, you know, so if you want that full body effect, you got to have something that gets into your bloodstream and a topical won't do that. So you've either got to eat something, you've got to put something under your tongue or you've got to inhale something, right? So an edible, uh, tincture or an inhalable. So that might mean vaporizing flour or a concentrate. Um, and then, you know, the way that you think about that is really just time course of effects, I would say, um, as many people know, but, but I'll say just in case they don't, you know, the edibles tend to feel more potent. Um, there's different reasons people give for why that might be, you know, when you eat something, it's not going directly into your bloodstream, it's going to be um, metabolized by your liver before it gets into circulation. Um, there's some reason to believe that THC, for example, can be processed into what is effectively a more potent version of THC. And that might be why um, edibles are often perceived as much more potent than inhaling THC. Um, but edibles will be slow onset and slow offset. So that's really the key difference between an edible and an inhalable. Um, it might take a while for that edible to hit you, depending on how full your stomach is and what you've eaten that day. It might be 20 minutes, it might be two hours. Um, but, you know, you're, it's gonna last for several hours. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who will take um, an edible dose of something before bed if they're looking to help with their sleep because it's gonna last all night, basically, or at least several hours. Um, an inhalable won't last as long, but it's also faster onset. So if you want, to feel it, whatever you're looking for immediately, um, that's where you would look to an inhalable. Um, I always recommend vaporizing more than smoking. Um, vaporization is going to be the healthier, healthier alternative. It's going to contain fewer nasty things. A lot of the nasty stuff in smoke is a byproduct of combustion itself. Um, and it's not limited to cannabis and it's not limited to tobacco. Um, anything that is burned is going to con contain toxins. So you know, for better or for worse, if you like to go camping and sit around a campfire, you're, you're going to be breathing in toxic wood smoke. So for that reason, vaporization um, is typically recommended, um, at least by me. Um, it just means you're heating up the cannabis at a lower temperature than you would if you were applying a flame to it. And that actually allows um, all of those cannabinoids and terpenes to vaporize, but you're also not going to destroy them or transform them as much as if you touch an open flame to them. 
Um, and, and of course, if you inhale something, the onset is more or less immediate. You're going to feel that right away. Um, so if you're looking for that immediate feedback and you want that systemic full body effect, you know, that's, that's where you would think about an inhalable. And, you know, all I would say for flower versus concentrates is make sure you start low and go slow, especially if you're trying that concentrate for the first time, because it is concentrated. It's got more THC in it. Um, but, um, it, you know, I think it's a lot of it is just preference. You know, how, how potent do you want it to be? How flavorful do you want it to be? The concentrates will be more potent. They can also be more flavorful because the terpenes are concentrated as well. Um, the vapor might be a little bit more harsh. The more terpene content you have, the, the more it's going to be a little bit scratchy in your throat. Um, you know, in general, you know, you might think about, do you want the isolated product with just THC, like a distillate product, or do you want a full spectrum product? You know, I'm, I'm not in the business of telling people, you know, which side of the holy war they should fall on. You know, some people are, you know, diehard distillate fans and some people say whole plant everything all the time. I, you know, I think it's really up to you. You know, you have to find what works for you and a full spectrum product that contains THC and other cannabinoids and terpenes often will be um, better. It might have effects that pure THC doesn't because you've got those interactions between those different cannabinoids and terpenes that may be there. Um, those will often be more flavorful too, right? A full, full spectrum product with uh, terpenes in it is going to taste probably, it's probably going to be more tasty than something that's just, just THC. Um, that being said, um, that doesn't mean it's going to be the best product for you. Again, you know, ultimately you want to think about all of, all the things that I've just said, and then, you know, you really do have to figure it out with trial and error. Um, ultimately this is a subjective thing. Um, at least if for, for something with, with a psychoactive effect and, and you need to try, and if it doesn't work, try something else. And if it does work, you know, pay attention to what, what that product was and what was inside of it. Um, so think about, think about the dose and start low. Think about the modality. Do you want something systemic or local? And think about whether or not you want something that's long lasting with slower onset, or you want something that's, that's fast acting and immediate. Awesome. Well, Nick, um, we're coming up onto the end of the show. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, the last question that I have for you, you know, are there any specific areas kind of going forward in cannabis research that, that you're really excited about, either that, that are going to be studied or that you personally think really need to be studied? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of exciting things going on, you know, such that, you know, five years from now, we will know a lot more than we do today. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for the paper that I mentioned that I've been working on to come out, which sort of just maps out the full chemical landscape of commercial cannabis and shows everyone what the actual cannabinoid terpene profiles are that are out there in the products that consumers are using. Um, I think, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how that informs things like the development of new chemovars of cannabis that people might breed and informs studies in humans that are actually going to look for some of these interactive or so-called entourage effects. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really excited to see ideas like the entourage effect tested in, in both animals and in humans. And there's people doing that. So actually giving rodents or giving humans particular ratios of different cannabinoids and terpenes to test the idea that, you know, these different ratios can have discernibly and measurably different effects on people. Um, so I'm really interested to map out that chemistry of all the products out there and then map out what the different effects of these different 
chemical profiles actually is. And, and there are, like I said, there are studies going on with that. So in the next few years, we will, we will have some insights. Um, I'm also really interested to see, you know, in the private sector, people develop new kinds of strains and products with brand new profiles that aren't really represented in, in the consumer landscape today. Um, you know, strains that have much higher levels of some of these minor cannabinoids like THCV. Um, you know, there's, there's some early preclinical pre hints in the literature that these compounds might have psychoactive effects, that they might have very interesting um, effects on metabolism and, and other physiological effects. And it'll be really interesting to see products actually get developed and, and put out into the world that actually have these sort of brand new profiles. So, you know, I'm generally interested in the entire area of just the chemistry of cannabis, mapping out what all of the chemical phenotypes are, and then really, you know, seeing people test what the effects of these things are in systematic ways, right? Like, I, I, you know, right now we have a lot of folk knowledge in the cannabis industry. There's a lot of belief that's based on experience. That's also highly subject to expectancy effects and our, our biases about these different effects that these different types of cannabis cause. And I think five years from now, we'll know, we'll know more. We won't know everything, but we'll know more about whether there's really something to these claims and more importantly, like what, you know, what the actual ratios are that cause these different effects. So that's, that's sort of what I'm keeping an eye out for. Very cool. Well, Nick, um, if people want to, uh, you know, get in touch with you or find out more about your work, where would you direct them to? Um, the best place is my website, nickjacomas.com. So that's N-I-C-K-J-I-K-O-M-E-S. That is my personal website. Um, I occasionally put some of my thoughts and writing there, but it's mainly a place where you can find all of the audio and video episodes of my podcast. So I have a science podcast that I put out each week. It's about, you know, basically anything science related, but I, I have a bias for talking about psychoactives and drugs. I have a bias for talking about, you know, emerging types of biotechnology and a lot about like neuroscience and the mind. So that's that's where you can find me, nickjacomas.com. You can also, on that website, find my social media. I'm relatively active on Twitter, posting things. And um, if you want to sort of learn more about what I'm thinking about, the, the podcast is probably the, the best thing to check out. Awesome. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel where Ross goes wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else that audio podcasts are available. If you guys did enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star Apple podcast review. That would be really helpful. Nick, again, I wanted to really thank you for coming on and sharing all your expertise and knowledge, and I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Toby.